Hey everyone, welcome back to our series called Big Butts of the Bible. Now, we're covering one that's really, really significant. The other ones that we've covered had a tendency to lean in towards these interpersonal relationships that we would have. And I don't know if you remember this or if you recall, but even if you didn't or do recall, the but within the sentence, within the statement, the big butts of the Bible, represents this transition point from maybe a behavior, an attitude, a, a statement of being, in towards something that is about to create change. So either God does something or we're called into something. Uh, and, and so today we're looking at the idea of actually God really, really coming into the mix in, in significant ways. And not that he didn't in the past and these other ones we covered, but this one very, very specifically is critical to what it means to be a believer. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to be reading verse 23. If you don't know where Romans chapter 6 is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. Please go ahead and use it. It's going to help you figure out where other things are in the Bible as well. And while you're doing that, I'll tell you a little bit about my own history. April 1st, 1988, up until I think it was March 1st, yeah, March 1st, 1991. We had something in place. By the way, April 1st, my birthday. And so April 1st, 1988, something massive happened for all the young people uh, within Canada. The minimum wage for students became equal to the minimum wage of adults. And prior to that, students were paid less than adults were. And you may be wondering, well, what was that wage? $4 and 70 cents an hour. That was minimum wage between 1988 and 1991, $4.70 an hour. Now you might wonder, okay, Rob, what are you talking about minimum wage for? Well, minimum wage was something that everybody was trying to figure out how to work with in terms of getting jobs over the summers, after school, all that kind of stuff. And so there was this location out in the Steinbach area that I worked, that, that I lived in, that everybody wanted to go and work at. It's called Granny's Poultry. Now we didn't want to work there because of the type of work it was. Trust me, I have worked many disgusting jobs there. And if you want to know more details about that, we could talk about that another time, but there was a lot of gross jobs there. And, uh, and so what I can tell you is that the reason that people wanted to go and work there at the time that minimum wage was $4.70 is because of what the starting wage was for that summer worker, $9.40 an hour. So you could well imagine, like we're talking double, more than double what it was to work minimum wage. It was a hard place to get a job at. So if you did get a job at Granny's Poultry, you felt awesome. But not only did you feel awesome, see, so the, the, the good side of working at Granny's Poultry was that you got a great wage. The bad side of working at Granny's Poultry is that it ruined you for everyone else because you became familiar with your value as an employee in terms of what you were getting paid. And so that became the standard. Well, you know, I can go work at Granny's Poultry because once you get on there, it's easy to, to get back on there in the following summer. And so, you know, I could go get this job at the gas station or at this other place, or I can go back to Granny's. And I may not have enjoyed the work, but I certainly enjoyed the paycheck and I knew that I earned it. 
that my work was valued and at a certain level and it was difficult for me to go work anywhere else for less than that value. So the wages I earned, I really felt like I deserved. I earned them. And we understand, I would suggest to you, that our efforts are worth something. That we place value on our time and our energy that others get from us. And it's especially true of our wages. And so we negotiate and we try to get the best wages that we can. And the, you could say that fair wages for work produced equals reasonable outcomes. Fair wages for work produced equals reasonable outcomes. We want our work to be paid the fair price, and we really don't like to settle for anything less than that. And that's what we believe our, worth is, our work is worth. So here's the trick then. You're like, Rob, you're supposed to be preaching. Okay, here we go. The similar principle is true within our spiritual walks. So Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Here's what it says. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, right? The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, as we're walking it forward, we come to a better understanding, a deeper understanding. Lord, maybe even a reminder of the importance of what it means to have a gift from you versus the wages that we've earned. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. All right, so this is probably not a new passage for, for most of us. Uh, many of us have grown up in the church, and, and maybe we've heard this passage before, right? Like the wages of sin is death. Maybe you've had somebody come your way, and, and they're trying to explain the gospel to you, and, and this is a, a statement that you've heard, a, a passage of Scripture that you've heard. And it's absolutely true, but the big but that we talk about in this particular message, the big but is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gift of God. So the big but here is the gift. Now, <clears throat> give you some context. Romans chapter 5 is talking an awful lot about what it means to be people who have a sin nature and at the same time have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so then we're, we're kind of caught in between this idea of, of sinning, not sinning, living for righteousness, living for sin, all that kind of stuff. And so then we've got this, this stuff going on and it kind of ends with a beautiful statement. It says, where sin is increased, grace increased all the more. That's Romans 5 verse 20. And so the whole idea behind that is that where we have sin, the grace is able to cover that sin all the more. So there is never, ever, ever a way to out-sin grace. That's the idea. God's grace has no limit. And sometimes we probably feel like neither does our sin. <laughs> but God's grace has no limit. And so there's this question that begins to emerge in this conversation of what happens in that relationship between grace and sin. And so chapter six starts off with sort of a possible objection, you could say, to uh, the idea of God's grace being able to cover um, the multitude of sin that's present. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so the grace may increase? This is Romans chapter six, verse one. And, and this is the struggle. Right? Like some people have this notion that, okay, God loves me, God forgives me, 
His grace covers all my sins, so I can accept Jesus and then just carry on sinning. And that's part of what Paul was dealing with in the church. And to some extent, I want to suggest to you that we kind of still deal with that today. Maybe you've heard it this way. Maybe there's sin in your life and you've confessed it to somebody, you've shared it with somebody, and maybe the response to you was this. Ready? Maybe you've heard this. Yeah, but you know everybody sins. Maybe you've heard that, right? Okay, let, let, me, let me offer this to you. They're absolutely right, and the Bible confirms it. It actually says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the way God talks about it is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then here the idea is that the wages of sin is death. So yeah, have all sinned? You bet. And it's not the idea of it's not a big deal. It's actually the idea that this is an immensely big deal such that God needed to come in and rescue us from our own paths, from the direction that we were going down. So sin's a big deal. What shall we say then? Shall we carry on sinning so that grace may increase? It's the idea here that if grace is so easy, we should, why should we bother to change our ways? If grace is so easy to come by, if forgiveness is so easy to receive from the Lord, why should we make any changes at all? You know, it's, you've heard the expression, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. And so why wouldn't people just continue living that way? And so you could say that whenever the gospel is clearly presented, this is a question that comes up. If all of our sins are so easily forgiven, why worry about sin at all? Shouldn't we just continue to sin? And Paul immediately launches this, this aggressive language into it. He actually says, by no means, Paul exclaims, we should avoid sin, even though our salvation doesn't depend on our success at quitting sin. You catch that? Our ability doesn't change God's salvation on us, okay? Our ability to stop sinning. But obedience has a different purpose. We stop sinning out of an act of obedience. If faith in Christ led to no longer needing to battle sin, well, then this question just wouldn't come up at all, right? The recognition here from the Roman Christians, the recognition from Paul, is that sin still exists within the life of believers. It's there, it's present, and we need to address it. It's gotta be a reality that we have to resist. And so then Paul carries on, and therefore Paul writes in verse 12, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So very simply put, right? Like Christians are not to continue in sin. So we do sin, but our salvation is not in jeopardy, but we are still commanded to obey God and to quit sinning. It's an interesting thing here because um, when you talk about this particular chapter of Romans, there's a lot of repetition in here. And, and Paul deals with this question of what should we do in response to grace and sin? And he, he handles this question twice. And in between each, he packages the explanation of what to do differently, but similarly at the same time. So the battle, there is a battle going on for our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our souls. We know that. The old slave master, sin, has been defeated by Jesus, but sin continues to attack us, right? So 
has been defeated, but he's still attacking. He's still trying to ensnare us, right? Like the, the sin that so easily ensnares is, is what Hebrew calls it. Hebrews calls it. Um, it tries to rule us, but we're not supposed to let it. Sin will take over as much as we allow. So we got to resist it, not let it rule our mortal bodies. And Paul really says, like, don't give up. Like, you've got to fight this thing. In verse 13, he says, do not offer the parts, uh, offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, sorry, brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, there's a language here that I think is important. It is important for us to understand that when we sin, when we fall short of what God would have for us, when we miss the mark of what he would have for us in life, sin doesn't happen to us. Like, we're not the victims of our own sin. It says here, listen, this is important. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Do not offer. Now, this is an important language because it suggests that there is a volitional act. There's an act of the will where we say, I'm giving myself over to this thing. I'm offering myself, my body, to this sin does we are not the victims of sin we offer our bodies to it which means there's always a decision to make every single time there's a decision do we offer it do we not offer it no ands ifs or buts that is it that is all there is there's no in-between space we either offer our bodies to it or we don't as it relates to personal sin and so it's important to note that and so there's this body going on there's this battle going on for control and we're really asking the question, are we going to let sin have its way or are we going to let God have his way? And even in asking the question, like, how do you let God have his way? Well, you give him your bodies as tools or weapons that he can use for righteousness. We shouldn't let sin use our body parts as tools to make us more wicked. Instead, we need to let God use our bodies as weapons of righteousness and, and, and standing for him as people who work in the kingdom. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So if we were under the authority of the law, then we would be condemned as sinners, and sin would have the final say in our lives. We would die. But we're not under that law, meaning that we're not under the penalty of not being able to keep the law. Death has been conquered, the power of sin has been broken, and the captives of sin have been set free. That's the language we find here. And so going back to sin makes no more sense than the prisoner who is, is given parole, who no longer has to be in prison. It makes no sense for that prisoner to go running back into his jail cell and say, hey, I want to live here. We are not a people who are freed from sin who then say, hey, I just want to go run back into sin. Like, that's not the way that it should be. We need to be like that prisoner who was pardoned and no longer needing to be in that prison and running away from it rather than towards it. The reality here is that if it weren't for grace, we would be condemned whether we try to do right or not. This is this free gift piece that kicks in. If it were just set on our own efforts, let's, let's understand this. Set on our own efforts, the wages for our work is death. The free gift from God 
is eternal life. And so without that grace, without that gift, whether we did right or wrong wouldn't have mattered because there was no salvation for us. There was no grace. We might as well just continue to sin because our efforts wouldn't have made a difference anyway. So grace gives us the freedom to escape the sin and to live for righteousness. And so it takes us a little bit back to this question of, okay, so grace covers all sin, right? So I seek forgiveness. The Lord forgives me. I receive his grace. We're, we're no longer uh, responsible for that sin anymore, even though there might be some consequences for some of the things we did. So should I just continue sinning because God's grace is so huge? And this is where Paul in verse 15 addresses that question again. And he says, what then, Paul asks in verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says. So Paul's dealing with the same question that he did way back in the beginning of the chapter, and this time maybe in a different, definitely actually in a different angle. God does not want us to sin, and, so, and we're supposed to obey God. And so then Paul develops this analogy of slavery a little bit further to make his point. And here's what he says. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So if you choose sin, you're enslaving yourself to a master that will make your life miserable. There's no question whatsoever. And work you to death, you could say. And you may ask yourself, okay, well, what's our choice? Well, the reality is, is that we're not completely independent. In other words, we have a choice between two masters. We have sin or we have God. That's it. Those are the masters. And so when we choose to the master of sin, then, then our life is, it ultimately becomes miserable. It becomes somewhat hollow. Um, we, we move in a direction that tends to be very self-driven. Not always, but it tends to be very self-driven. And, and momentarily, it may seem like a great time, but ultimately it leads to a horrible time. And then, of course, we have this idea of being slaves to God. The reality here is that we're going to be slaves to one power or another. We have no choice about that. But we do have a choice as to who will be our master. So we could choose sin or we could choose God. And the Romans here, this is the encouragement to the Roman church, actually, and hopefully an encouragement to you. The Roman church already made the right choice. Paul says, and, but thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you are wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from the sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is verses 17 and 18. And so the encouragement to the Romans, the Roman believers, and hopefully to those of you today who are, who are believers, is that you've already chosen. You ultimately want to be slaves to God. This is why, if you're curious, this is why when we sin, It convicts us. We, we have a hard time with sin in our own lives. There's this conviction that we feel that causes us to want to shift and be different and, and behave differently and move in a different direction, maybe have different thoughts. But it also causes us to have a desire for obedience, which is one of the telltale signs of an authentic believer. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so obedience is 
part of what it means to choose God in this idea of how we live. And so obedience is a normal result of faith. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, that would be you and me, people who are not Jewish, to the obedience that comes from the faith for his name's sake. And so there's this natural thing of obedience that takes place within the life of genuinely, um, genuine believers, right? Those who truly, truly want to follow after Christ. And you may also then ask yourself why Paul was using the analogy of slavery. Verse 19 of chapter 6, he actually answers it. He says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. So the Romans were weak. As a matter of fact, all Christians are uh, in our natural selves. In and of, it's a, of ourselves, we're weak. We, we know that. and we, we don't need someone coming at us and telling us that. We already are quite familiar with how fragile we actually are. And the Romans were slaves of righteousness here. So this is that encouragement, right? And yet they needed to be urged to continue in that righteousness. We fight against sin as long as we live in our mortal, in our mortal bodies. It is an enemy that should be resisted. And if we don't resist it, well, guys, you know what? It actually just gets worse and worse. One sin leads to another that leads to another that leads to another. And it's this snowball effect. And what ultimately ends up happening is that we move away from our relationship with the Lord, more towards our relationship with sin, and then sin abounds in there. Now, it's not that grace can't cover it, but if you want to talk about life and, 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 and how life functions, the more we choose sin, the bigger the sin gets. And quite honestly, I've seen lives just absolutely devastated because of it. But we want to be enslaved to doing good. And that's because we're already saved. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation. Like we, we do good things because we have a good God and we desire to follow after him. We want to follow his commandments and, 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 and please him and, and serve others. Like that's why we do these good things. It becomes part of our nature. There's nothing to do with trying to earn salvation. Not in any way, shape or form. We do it because our savior wants us to do good. And when we do that, it gets better and better, righteousness leading to holiness. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Now just think about that for a moment. Slaves to sin, free from the control of righteousness. Slaves to sin, free from righteousness. So it stands to reason then that slavery had, every slavery had a form of freedom. When we sin, it might look like we're free from outside control, but we really are in slavery. Verse 21 says, what did it benefit you? I'm oh, sorry, what benefit did you reap? That time from being the things you are now ashamed of. Those things result in death. Let me say it again. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things that result in death. And so what he's doing here is with the Roman Christians, he's saying, hey, listen, turn the clock back. Think back in time. Those things that you're currently ashamed of, what did they benefit you back then? The sins that you were committing, the revelry that you were in, the, the hostilities that you were in, what did they benefit you? 
And he's asking them to evaluate their own history so they can truly understand and appreciate their present and move towards their future. Sin produces death, and we don't want to serve that kind of master. So what looked like liberty was actually bondage. Verse 22 says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And so now we're no longer under sin's authority. We are freed from that power, but we are also under obligation. We're slaves to God. But this benefit, that's entirely better because it's holiness and eternal life. Now, the word slavery here is an analogy. It's, a, it's not a complete description of a relationship with God, right? Because far more scripture talks about this uh, family language of our relationship with God, right? Like more as dearly loved children or as inheritors of great wealth. But the word slavery here is useful in the notion or insofar as it emphasizes our responsibility to obey. What do slaves do? Slaves obey. That's what they do. And so we either obey sin or we obey God. And that's what he's trying to get at here. That's what he's trying to get at. And so in what sense is eternal life the result of obeying God? Now, Paul, just, just to be clear, Paul would vigorously deny that our obedience causes our salvation. And it's not what he's saying here. He clearly says that salvation is a gift based on faith rather than works, on grace rather than payment. And so here, Paul is simply making a contrast between obedience that leads to holiness instead of shame and eternal life instead of death. This is what he's doing. So it's holiness instead of shame, eternal life instead of death. This is what he's helping us see. He's trying to help us see that sin and God are diametrically opposed. They are opposites. And so in the same way, God gives eternal life, sin then produces death. This is the idea behind it. And so why should we deny sin and obey God? This comes right now to verse 23. This is the great but in this chapter. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fair wages for work produced equals reasonable outcomes. And when you lay these, this verse over top of itself, it looks like this. You've got the wages, and then you've got the gift. You've got of sin, of God. You've got uh, resulting in death or eternal life. One equals man's work, one equals God's work. And so if we were going to talk about fair wages for work produced equals reasonable outcomes, then what we could say is that if the wages of sin produces death, that is the reasonable outcome for man's work. This is what we do. We sin. And every single time we come along and we try to say things like, but I'm a good person. No, you're not. I'm not. You're not. The Bible actually tells us that no one is good, not even one. Because the only one that's considered good in the scripture is God. And we're not him. So nobody's good. Let's just get that clear. Nobody's good. And everything that we have in life, look, the reality is in terms of God's economy, where there is sin, sin must get punished. Man is unable to um, 
man is unable to be able to deal with his own sin in terms of be able to make that payment. And so then if you have one sin in your life and you haven't received Jesus, you need to know you're not good and the wages of that sin is death. That's it. And the only way out of that, the only way out of what we've earned is this gift from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have wages versus gift. That's what we have. If we serve sin, we get wages, something we deserve, shame and death. But if we serve God, we get eternal life as a gift, something we didn't deserve. And Paul says, choose life. So this would be, let's say, the other equation that I would encourage you to think about. If one equation from a man's perspective is fair wages for work produced equals reasonable outcomes, then God's equation here would be this. God's gift instead of our work produces outrageous outcomes. Outrageous outcomes. And they're outrageous because what God offers us is something we don't deserve. It is a gift and it is immense. It's eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This but here is pivotal to the Christian walk. If the wages of sin is death. And God says, I don't want that equation. Here's a gift. That but in there changes everything. So it's a but God. And what comes on the other side of that but is God's work on behalf of mankind. So that equation that God uses here is quite simple. God's gift instead of our work produces outrageous outcomes. Those outrageous outcomes are eternal life. So Here's the challenge. In the same way that Paul challenges a Roman church, I want to challenge you as Paul is challenging all of us. We have two masters that we could be serving. One is sin. One is God. Choose. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time today. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that would choose you. And that whatever hurdles we have to doing that, Lord, whatever, uh, whatever insecurities we have in choosing you, whatever we feel we've done wrong that we believe it just separates us from you to the extent that we can't choose you. I pray, Lord, that we will accept the truth and know that we can choose you. And then when we call in your name, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and so, Lord God, we can trust that. And so, Lord, would you forgive us of whatever it is that separates us? Forgive us our sin, Lord. We don't want it. We don't want to live that way anymore. We don't want to be in that space. We don't want to have that master. We want to have you. And so, Lord God, help us to be a people who continually choose you. In your name I pray. Amen.